0: Welcome to the knock on archery podcast, where we bring all archers and bow hunters together from all walks of life with the goal to educate, empower, and inspire you to be better both in the field and on the range. This is awesome. It's fun to have a podcast with someone of your stature, honestly. please. (laughs) It's so true though. So Jen, you've been in the industry, gosh, I'm trying to think.
1: Forever? 25 years.
0: I don't want to ask your age. You got to get a little closer. Otherwise we won't hear you. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's awkward, but just pretending like you're <laughs> at a concert. I know you've had a dream that you're a rock, a star. rock star. Yep, this is your cha- this is your chance. Is it 25 years?
1: Plus. Yeah. I was going
0: to say I feel like it's longer than that because yeah. the first time I'm sure the first time I ever saw you was with Laverne. Mm-hmm. Um Did you ever go to Hidden Acres Christian Youth Camp in Dayton, Iowa?
1: No. You no, never did?
0: I hadn't. Mm-hmm. Because um, Delta actually sent targets there for the 24 hours with the guys retreat. Yep. And yep. Um, and I actually um, spoke there a few times, but then uh, worked with that Christian youth camp uh, in the summer. And I was, you know, gosh, 19, 20 years sure. old, uh, worked for Matthews at the time. And Delta was you know, kind of a leader, especially in the Midwest, for sure. Yeah. Um, at the time, it was just McKenzie and Delta. Yeah. And then, uh, so you were there. And then you've, you've seen the industry just kind of change, really. Do you agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's evolved, just, grown.
0: Y- yeah, it's evolved, grown. Uh, so McKenzie got acquired by uh, Easton, or Delta got acquired by so McKen- McKenzie that?
1: got acquired by Delta. The combination was acquired by East. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, that was a cool move. How did that, how did that all play out? Um, did you just keep the target side, but the, but the form side stayed with McKenzie technically?
1: Yep. All the taxidermy um, eventually sold to Reinhardt.
0: Oh, that's yeah. crazy, yeah. Yeah, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. The way that split apart. I didn't yeah. know that part. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Um, Just. Honestly, the development of 3D Targets, like how much they've changed. When was the first – Did who made the first 3D Target, like officially on production? Do you know that? You
1: know, there's, a, there's an ongoing argument, I think, between yes. Laverne and Kevin McKenzie about <laughs> who had the first one. But ironically, they, they both started in 89. Like that was the, the year they both created the 3D Target and got there through different routes. Yeah. But ultimately, the same concept and –
0: Where were you in 89?
1: I was graduating high school in
0: 89. (laughs) I was graduating junior high. Oh, really? No, I was in seventh grade. (laughs) I would have had a leather jean jacket with a Ride the Lightning Metallica t-shirt sewn on the back. And I'm sure I had a mohawk, probably multiple colors. What would you have going?
1: Nice, big hair.
0: Big. Bangs, did big you hair. have the full?
1: Not, not the something full.
0: about Mary. Just not, straight no, not, up. Not
1: that bad, but but kind <laughs> of rat tail. I had a rat tail. You now. did? Yeah. Swear to God. I yeah. think I did.
0: Yeah, because yeah, awesome. uh, yeah, the rat tails were made popular by, uh, well, Donnie Wahlberg, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. I had some stripes, I know, on the side of my hair, maybe even in my eyebrows, but I doubt you had that.
1: No, no. I'm bad. <laughs> you had
0: bangs and a rat tail. Yes.
1: You can only go so far in Catholic school though. I mean really.
0: Dude, you yeah. pulled that off in Catholic school. Yeah, exactly. That is stellar. Then. That that is stellar. Yeah. Nice. You need to bring that back. Mm. It's coming back.
1: It probably is. Truthfully. But it was never good then, so
0: like all the glasses right now are like coming back to like, remember how cool Oakley's were then? Yeah. Like the, the razors yes. and the razor blades. Now they're all coming back.
1: Oh yeah. My boys are all over it.
0: Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're just looking at like back when we were in junior high, just thinking freaking straight up punks. Oh, they're I gonna know. be hating this in 20 years. They're <laughs> exactly. gonna be like, what a dork. The mullet's
1: back in. <laughs> I know mullets glory. Yeah, I
0: know. Yeah, oh, it kind of looks like the Iowa State Fair everywhere you walk. You know,
1: <laughs> I was just there. It was awesome. The best people watching ever.
0: Where do you? Where's your? Where's your uh, spot to set up a stand and freaking? Oh yeah. and watch. Where'd... I don't know.
1: There's a little uh, two level restaurant bar area in the middle there where you can just sit and watch people walk
0: in. I think the, I know where you're governor, talking about. So. We always post it up back by the fried butter and f- oh. fried butter sticks and the fried uh, Oreos. Yep. And just, yeah. I mean, it's, you get all, it's the best people watching on earth. It was, it was. Uh, have you ever seen the fried butter sticks?
1: I have, I have not.
0: Have you seen someone try to eat one. it? No. You haven't?
1: No, we did the fried Oreos and
0: I wonder Ohio. how big they are now. Is it like a smaller stick or is it still that big freaking stick?
1: It's got to be smaller. Everything's smaller oh, these days.
0: Okay, well, I mean, I would say that stick of butter was every bit as big as this can yeah. on a popsicle stick, and then they would dunk that into I think like pancake batter mm-hmm. or something. And then they would deep fry it. And so then people would walk away and like bite the top. And then the melted the butter,
1: butter would, just, would just be
0: going down their arm. And you'd see people just trying to lick molten <laughs> butter off their elbow. And it yeah. would just be. Why? <laughs> and it every now and then you would see someone that was in pretty good physical stature, like attempt it. And it was like a one bite wonder. They were like, OK, I tried it. Yeah. Harry got uh, fried Oreos, and he was just like, these are actually pretty good. And then by the time he got to the second one, he's like, do you guys want any? <laughs> and I think I took one bite, and I'm like, that's good for the rest of my life.
1: My second youngest had those and thought it was the best thing he's ever eaten. Still? Yeah.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. Dang, that's he was awesome. pretty impressed. Well, let's go back to the targets. So uh, what was the first, like, tournament where— 3D official 3D targets made their cuz I'm trying to think I I wouldn't have been uh I think 91 or 92 would have been like kind of the tale when I tell people, you know, I pulled over and saw this sign on the side of the road that said 3D shoot. Before that our club all made targets. Yep. So like Every member, um, and I, I went to Fox Valley Archers in Illinois. Yep. You know that club? I
1: know the club, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, So that was like the first club I went to, and we used to have two shoots a year, and people would just make targets out of like big foam insulation. Right. You know, they glue them together, put a metal ring on there, which I honestly still think the metal ring is like a really good idea, because it would be, there'd be no line calling, right? Right. It's in or out. Yeah. I always thought if there was some kind of a metal band in the scoring ring where the arrow would go inside of it or outside of it, it's just plain as day. There's no touching. You're in or you're out, right? Exactly. Um, But then I remember maybe it was 93 when uh, I saw that, like, the first actual 3D targets. And then probably a year later is when I went to the first uh, IBO Triple Crown in Bedford, Illinois, or Bedford, Indiana. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, uh, man, from there on out, like, 3D was on fire.
1: So IBO probably was the first national level 3D shoots, but you had a lot of, you know, local um, Anderson Archery used to have a big deal back in the day. Um, The field archery clubs started out, you know, with paper targets on bales and stuff, and then they would kind of dabble at the 3Ds. But IBO was probably the first one, and then there was a big Cabela's.
0: The NABH, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. they had
1: their their big deal. Yeah,
0: their tour was, I honestly loved the Cabela's format. Yeah, Um, It was like the first... I think they did a better job of um, their rules were a little bit ahead of the time. Mm-hmm. I think they were honestly because that was a um, a fifty yard plus or minus max, but they they scored. Let me see. How did they score it? Were they just? I think they might have been just ten eight five. Well, and that, then and then they went to a certain yeah yeah. yeah. But ASA was always 45 max. Yeah. And then Cabela's notoriously had the longer. And then they had the tour bus and the official stage. Yeah. And Dave Watson was oh, the yeah. commentator oh, announcing yeah. all the shoots. That's actually where I met Dave, um, was in a shoot-off for the NABH. But it was pretty cool just having that whole big bus. Because they did walleye and they did archery. And what else did Cabela's do? There were three parts did, of their shooting. Um,
1: dog um,
0: was it the dog retrieving? Retrieving. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Just looking back at that time, like the female that was dominant then was uh, Sherry Barnes, Yep. Joella Bates. Bates. Yeah. And uh, Lori Watson.
1: Wow, you were really throwing back there,
0: dude. I'm impressed. I honestly I can't remember most people's names that I meet right now, <laughs> and I like names are my biggest nemesis. So uh, a lot of times I'll write, like when I'm going somewhere, I'll write people's names down on my notes and yeah. I'll just say it and, say it and say it and say it and say it. Most of the time when I'm like, hey, dude, it's not because I want to call him, dude. It's yeah. because I can't honestly remember. can't remember your name. <laughs> yeah. But I remember the most used, like useless stuff. Like, uh, I mean, how I don't know people's names in camp that I was with last week, but I could remember like Sherry and Dennis Barnes yeah. when I probably like went up and asked for an autograph like once or twice. It's not like, you know, I would know him him because I was hanging out with them, which is pretty cool. But what was the, like, what was the perspective? I mean, was there kind of some competition between Delta and McKenzie? Because both of you guys were really trying to take a stake. And how did you, um, I guess let's, before you answer that, let's go back So what made you get involved with the outdoor and just like hunting, bow hunting, or what came first, bow hunting or being involved with the outdoors or?
1: You know, it was completely dumb luck. It was. I mean, I was coming out of college with a marketing degree and needed a job and answered an internship for a company that I knew nothing about. And when I got there, I was like, holy cow, these guys
0: who was it? It
1: was Delta. Oh, it was. It was Delta. Just and a it was,
0: straight up yeah. intern role. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And
1: I didn't know anything about hunting. I didn't grow up hunting at all. So I was like, this is kind of different. Because actually, I, I probably would have been in the, in the anti-hunting group, honestly. Just the way I had grown up and what I had experienced from hunting at the wow,
0: time. Wow, what a cool story. Yeah,
1: so it worked out great that you know, I worked with some great folks who were like, listen, if you're gonna kind of do this, you probably should try it. <laughs> and so then after a year, I got moved out of the marketing side into sales. And I guess, you know, 19 years later, I kind of had worked my way into a couple different roles there and had some buddies who took me by the hand and taught me how to hunt. And it was, it was great. I loved it. I mean, I. mean, never thought that I would do that or spend my life in this industry but it's been great I've enjoyed every minute of it
0: yeah it's funny how things happen because the industry would be very different without you I feel like oh well, thank you there's like I don't know what would you say there's two dozen maybe at best three who have like who you could honestly say have really guided direction of the industry Would you think that?
1: Oh, yeah. Like from a
0: manufacturing point of view or key people that were, that are upper management of companies that have like been through everything you and I have for, you know, well, let's see. So I'm, I'm almost at third. I'm sure you're at 30 years or close. close. Yeah. So three decades. Yep. And the key, there's several key people that are there that have still remained, but it's uh It would be different without you. I know that. I know it for sure when it came to, especially once the acquisitions happened, because I feel like, I feel like Delta was probably the most affordable target. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think the majority of the P of people had a Delta target in their backyard over the McKenzie targets because they were, I mean, they were, they were affordable backyard targets. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then that kind of paved the way for like, even now, like Morrell, you know, is making like, you know, they're having to, they're having, they're seeing where people are willing to pay to get targets in the backyard. So, because even now, like, you know, with McKenzie, if you buy an elk target, I mean, you're making an investment over a hunt, right? Versus, versus like, we just released a bag target. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, I did. Uh, Okay. That's great. Um. So, yeah, we released the bag target with, with Morel with kind of a, I feel like it's the first bag target with a purpose, yep. you know, because that for me, I always bought a bag target and then had to put faces on it to where I could actually train. And even, even when people see like the targets at the school knock, regardless of what my back bales have always been, I've always had custom f- like mats or faces. Yep made on my own to then put on the front to where they suit an application of what it is that I'm training for. So right. I think it was a a huge movement to where people could finally start really practicing in the backyard. Yeah. versus like
1: kind of st- cl- stuck our claim in that backyard center of the plate kind of bow hunter guy. Yeah. We always had product that that catered to the the national level shoot. And we competed heavily against McKinsey there. Like, there was knockdown dragouts annually to see who would get the contract with IBO, or, you know, and we had kind of locked up ASA for a long time. But that's where, you know, we really fought. And then we fought at that opening price point, Deer Target in the backyard. Um, always very competitive, but great relationship between the two companies. Like yeah. Laverne and Kevin were always very friendly, but we were definitely. I think we can say we won the battle at the at the consumer, and they always had the name at the competitive, yeah, you know, high end level.
0: Yeah, because I think once ASA came in, I think um, Wayne Wayne blew archery up to a different level. Mm-hmm. You know, even above the IBO. Even though even though the IBOs, I think at worlds and stuff probably had a higher turnout. It was very much like all the core people from the key bow hunting states, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Indiana, PA, and yeah. Ohio. And so they could draw 1,500 shooters just from those, I mean, honestly, just from the state if right. they really did it well enough. And then um, and then once the ASA kind of took over the, the whole Southeast, oh. and then especially once Wayne Pearson got Pennzoil in, once pins oil came in, it was almost like at that point, it kind of, I mean, it didn't hit a NASCAR level, but it looked, I mean, it seemed like it was trending that way. And then obviously the targets really got recognition at that point.
1: Well, and, and ironically, those kinds of numbers are being just blown away right now at at an attendance level, you know, with, with, covid or whatever we want to say is the cause we've had such an upsurge in in attendees at those events it's been great to see participation pick it up again
0: yeah I think everything I mean honestly there's so many different formats of like there's competitive archery but there's also the opportunity to shoot archery like that but non-competitively yep. um, which is awesome for for me because you know I can't I don't, I'm not fully dedicated to training for target archery. So even though like for people watching, I might look like I'm a great archer. um, I'm not a phenomenal archer right now. And there's people that do it every day. And, and honestly, like I wouldn't right now, I would not beat my late twenties or 30 year old self because I mean, I did it till, you know, there were holes shot out of targets the size of that can, you know, and I would just shoot the shoot freaking targets all the time and pay the neighbor to change my three D course once a week so that when I walked out there it looked different and just, you know, I just drilled nonstop. And um if you're not doing that, it gets frustrating, which I think is why the attendance went down so much, especially in the known class, because those people that didn't have a job and actually did it that way, you know, the people well, it kind of started, I think, I think it started that direction um, the heaviest with Tom Crow and, and George Dixon, uh-huh. because those were the first two people that actually like were in a mobile trailer going to every event and getting there early, putting their own targets out and training in that situation and
1: they made it a full time job,
0: yeah. And that was when it, it truly became full time. And the people that weren't full time were just going there to donate an entry fee, yeah. And it became very apparent that you know, I always tell people, listen, you could have an archery tournament, the same tournament, you could have it three times in a row, and you're, you're gonna have probably the same three pe- or the same 10 people within the top 10 but you could very well have three different winners. Mm-hmm. But it's like there was there was like the super elite, small group. Then there was, you know, the people that are always within striking distance. Right. And once a year they had things where the cards fell yep. in their direction and they would pick one up. And then there was a lot of people that just really loved it, loved the atmosphere. But yeah. to be honest with you, you know, I know when we were doing like marketing budgets and stuff and like looking at pro staff, uh, it was, it was like, okay, is this person ever going to win slim chances, but he has the potential like on a given day. However, this person is there because they do such good work in their local area. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of just a bonus for us. But, but the reality is their real value isn't, going to be podium finishes it's going to be what they do for archery outside of that
1: yeah we call those folks influencers and <laughs> <laughs> well and I probably fell into that group I mean been to I can't even count how many archery shoots I've been to in my lifetime but I didn't have the time to devote to being great at it yeah I was good enough you know I could get hit five in a pie plate if I needed to <laughs> and uh bow hunted you know helped me there but it wasn't something that I could ever devote that kind of time to but I loved the events loved the people it was it was such a community with those groups I mean like you said you run in the same people you know for the most part in a lot of those places and I love what TAC has done now yeah with just inviting new folks to play the sport yep. um, concepts not necessarily new yeah. I've seen it done a couple different times but the the, the environment they've created and the following that they've drawn, I mean, give them a lot of credit for what they've built.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think, I think the, the environment is perfect, but, um, I think they've had the, they've just had the perfect amount of people promote it. Um, people in a demographic that suits the tax shooters perfectly, Yeah. um, And those people are there and that's, it's a community within itself. You know, at this, at this point, um, I was talking with Joel Maxfield last week and we were, we were actually talking about this stuff and, and he just, you know, he gets it, but he also doesn't get it. Right. And I just said like, dude, it's, you know, (laughs) there's more than one pie now, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's more than one pie. There's people that just want to shoot a bow to know where their food comes from which was never the case 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I made a post the other day and I really meant this. So I, I gave, uh, I was in Salt Lake and I gave the, um, the president of Traeger this like gold bow on a plaque. And I told him, I said, in all my years in the industry, there's been countless numbers of companies that have Tried to help people and teach people how to kill stuff, but you're the first company that's came along that's taught people how to grill stuff. Yeah. You know, and when they came forward and they they make it so easy to do on an app, um, and they're bringing in outdoor the outdoor community to help with some of those recipes. Um, yeah. It's just it's made it's made wild game taste better to people that kind of had that stigmatism of like "Uh, I don't know if I want to because now it's like if people try it they're like that looks amazing and then they you know and you'll be like well it's venison and then they'll be like yeah well I'll try it and then they're just like holy cow this is way better than I thought so I think that's a whole different demographic just people that aren't have no interest in competitive shooting probably have no interest in trophy hunting no um which I'm like the older I get, the more like I want trophy hunting is like kind of really fallen out of my priority list. Right. Um, I want if I'm there with someone that's new to the sport, I'd rather them yeah. shoot something bigger Um, because it's. You know, it's like you see that's just something that it's an addiction. It's like yeah. from that point on, they're not going to stop doing it. You know, exactly. Um,
1: if you can make them a raving fan of bow hunting, then to me, that's as good as a trophy on my own wall. I mean, if I can bring another person into the sport, that's that just helps perpetuate all of our loves.
0: Oh, yeah. So what was your first bow hunt then?
1: Uh, my first bow hunt was a was a whitetail hunt in Iowa. Um, nice. my boss Laverne at the time. Yep. Had a little spot up in, in Shell Rock. He put me in a tree stand. I didn't know anything. Like literally I I knew enough to hit a target. <laughs> was this? Was, about, this? was probably 93.
0: Oh dang. 93. No safety belts. No,
1: nothing. Nothing. I'm in a tree stand by myself. He had just walked me out. What to this was spot. it? Like
0: an API? Stand? Yeah, exactly. It was, yes. yes it was. Awesome. Totally.
1: And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm not even sure if I can get back to the trailer from here. Cause I had no idea where I was at. And I, um, sat up there going, okay, now what do I do if I actually hit something? Cause I've never gotten this far. <laughs> people before. still say that <laughs> exactly. right now. Yeah. No, it was great. And it was just a little forky, you know, first deer, but it was great. I had a awesome experience. Never thought that I would, you know, ever shoot anything much less, you know, experience it with people that I enjoyed being around. And he was great. You know, he had was,
0: you ever felt nerves like that or anything? You
1: know what? I to this day, I don't feel nerves when I shoot. It's afterwards. Yeah. Like afterwards, I'm like, holy cow, that was so awesome. But in the moment, I don't. I don't had know, you ever felt it.
0: that though? Like after, yeah. like after the shot, yeah. and once you got up to it, you had you ever no, it was felt great. that's it was great? Yeah,
1: it's totally. I mean, competitive sports, all of those things, nothing the same. The same feeling. Uh, it was great.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. So then, um, what was like? Did you ever have something that was on your bucket list that you ended up being able to go after?
1: You know, I've been fortunate enough to hunt a lot of different things. I haven't necessarily harvested a lot of things, yeah. but, you know, um, caribou and black bears and a elk hunted and antelope. We did a lot of antelope hunting. Antelope hunting to me was like, it was that, that time of year when I could take a deep breath mm-hmm. with the business and with the kids, whatever. You know, I, would, I remember sitting in a blind in, in Wyoming just roasting in September, <laughs> working on the budget, you know, on my yep. computer while I sat there and, and being able to shoot out um, and all of it was awesome.
0: Pre-catalog time, yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah it's just starting incredible. to lay out catalogs.
1: Totally nuts and, yeah, but it was quiet, nobody's calling, nobody's bothering me. Yep. It was great. It was just solitude, you know.
0: I do that, too. Like, people, when I say, like, here we go, antelope hunting 14 hours a day in a blind, people are just like, I would... You know, need to take a gun in there to shoot myself, and it's like it. no, because well, even this year, I needed antelope hunting so bad because um, the tack events are are very consuming, and um, and I really try my best to like, you know, if someone wants to talk, you know, I try to my t- my time is to myself is literally at dark, and a lot of times. At dark, the people that I'm hanging out with are people that I would love to hang out with all during the day. But I tell, I tell them like, Hey, we're, you know, we're, we're here for our community, you know, and and I'm here for, I'm here for my community and, and, you know, I don't want to be as much as I want to go shoot with my buddies. That's why in Montana we didn't set up a booth. Mm -hmm. I just said in Montana, I'm here to enjoy it. If you see me come say hi, but you know, we just wanted to shoot, We wanted to get up in the morning, be on the mountain. We shot three or four courses, I think. We shot every day, and we grilled out and chilled and kind of wandered through the village. So we were consumers to the event. Sure. Um, But if I'm not that, it's, I mean, it is just, it's, it's. Awkward to say that it like takes a lot of energy, but it just does. Mm -hmm. It you know it just it it just kind of drains that out of you because you're just going and going and going and going. And then once I came back, it was digging out at work, and then and then prepping for antelope. And then once I got in the blind, I'm like, dude, this is just this quiet is just awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I took like a little practice guitar and. If nothing was inside of 200 yards, i you know yep. played that a little bit and and surfed the internet on totally non archery topics, and it was like awesome. Yep. And I think so many people get that. You know, I think when people go to a hunting camp at first, they're like, "Oh, there's no signal here. You know, where do we need to go to get signal?" And then by the third day, yep, exactly. you see them; they're just kicked back and they're like, their phones not even yep. by them and
1: decompressed.
0: Yeah, it's so perfect for that.
1: Yeah, no, I love that.
0: So um once once Easton acquired everything, I mean, did it hit a whole new gear then?
1: It did. It did. I mean, as normally happens in those kind of situations, they they bring a lot of resources. Yeah. Um, a lot of expertise that maybe we didn't have and you know, we learned a ton during that. It also happened that that's when our, our building burnt down. So Whew. through that process, you know, they were great partners and, and, you know, basically just said, Hey, whatever we have to do.
0: Were you there now. the day the fire happened? No, actually I was at an archery shoot Where the state. Where? I was
1: at an ASA in Georgia.
0: Oh my gosh. When, One of the first ones? Um, was it Gainesville?
1: It, it, yeah. No, no. Um, Athens? Might've been Athens. Okay. Yeah. But it was... Uh,
0: February? Is that one, no,
1: it was a been No, it would have been June.
0: Oh, it would really? Have been late. Okay, yeah, it was late. Normally, that was always like the second one. Yeah, it would have been, or at least when it was in Gainesville, Fort Campbell.
1: Which, okay, which one is that? Fort Campbell. Um, but yeah, so we get a phone call that there's a fire in the building. Which I hate to say this, but it's not like we'd never had somebody say there was fire. We, we're dealing with flammable stuff, yeah, you know, yeah, and not so not just flammable, yeah,
0: like you know, it's. Serious stuff. Catastrophic if Catastrophic, toxic
1: stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So the first phone call was like, "Okay, what are we doing?" Somebody call the fire department. You know, whatever. And pretty soon it became this is a lot more than just a you know a little fire. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, so we were watching you know some stuff come across the national news because this is this was a pretty big event for a small town and.
0: Dyke, Iowa.
1: Dyke, Iowa. Yep. <laughs> Middle of nowhere, Dyke, Iowa. Yeah, nice little community. No, actually, this was when we were in Rhinebeck. Oh, okay. Even smaller. Oh, dang. Yeah, even smaller. Is that what
0: forced the move? Yeah. Okay. It
1: was. It was. And, um, you know, I'm getting video footage from, from folks, you know, about what's going on. And I'm watching my office burn up. And then I'm watching it burn up a second time. And, you know, it was, it was just, you couldn't even imagine something like this happening. And so um, we... We immediately said, okay, we're going to dig in. We're going to take care of our people. We're going to figure out how to get this thing up and running again. And, and Easton just said, hey, what do we need to do to help? And it was great. I mean, it was nice to have have partners. And thank goodness for insurance, you know. But after uh, less than a year, we were back up and running again. So our, even our retail partners were great. I mean.
0: Were we you able to, to, like, take that and actually streamline process and, and make it come out of that better yeah. just because you were able to rebuild?
1: Well, it, it The way we kept all of our people employed was we turned them into mold makers. And so we had an entire crew that learned a new skill, you know, and were there available as backup if we needed it, you know, in the future. And, you know, I think they took a lot of pride in the work that they did to get the the company back up and running again. And our retail partners were patient, you know, they allowed us the time to do that. So it was was great. And And moving into a new building, you know, you get to lay everything out the way you maybe would have wanted to in the old building, if you'd had the the luxury of, of forethought, you know, but it, it ended up being a great thing for us, even though at the time it didn't feel so great.
0: How much did the molds change after that? Did you make, because I know there's definitely been progression on like the targets for sure. Yeah. And some of that probably would have never happened if you weren't forced to do new molds just because of the cost involved with that.
1: You know, honestly, the, the, the one thing that we did right was we kept all of our masters in a different location. So we could go back and we could use the original sculptures. Oh, so dang. That and that really, I mean, yes, we got better at making molds. We got more efficient. Um, that that improved a little bit, but really over time, the biggest improvements were just the, the more lifelike product. You know, yeah. when I look back at some of the stuff that was built in the in the beginning, that they look like caricatures to me compared to real <laughs> animals, you know? I it's mean?
0: like going to a really good wax museum and then going yeah. to like the one that I saw Conan O'Brien go to once yeah. on, on his show. And they looked yeah. so bad yeah. to where it's just like, wow.
1: Yeah. I look back on some of those and at the time they were like the best. That Oh, know, heck yeah. I and mean, it was line drawings on pieces of paper is what people shot at before that. So... Of course those look better, but now I, I look at them and I chuckle because the perspective's wrong and, you know, nothing looks like a real deer or a real bear, so. What was
0: one of the biggest hurdles you feel like you you took on um, or had to overcome in the industry just based on, like, your background? Because, honestly, there weren't very many women that had, like, you know, I shouldn't say leadership roles, but there were there were a few – Um, like Sherry Strickland was one Mm -hmm. that I know, um, that like dove into, dove into much needed topics. And then you were one of the other ones that I can think of offhand. Um, were there like obstacles there or was there any adversity or was it like, were you able to just step in and have respect right out of the gate? Or it's
1: interesting. Folks like, uh, Michelle Masakia.
0: Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, Michelle was there early. Lorraine. Oh, yeah, that's Over right. at True the yep. selling
1: housing. Um, those guys, you know, had come up through the ranks, family members. Yeah, you know? that's so right. So I think that's a little different route than maybe I took. Um, and at the time, I, I probably was too naive to know the difference, honestly. Um, I got thrown into sales, and I just did it you know there wasn't a there wasn't a backup plan so I had to figure it out and I was really fortunate because whether it was because I was young and naive and retailers took you know me under their wing and said oh this poor little girl from Iowa who doesn't know anything we're going to help her out (laughs) or what but you know they were they were nice to me and put up with the fact that I didn't know anything and you know eventually I learned and they helped me along and you know, it just, it worked out. I, I didn't ever, honestly, I, people ask me this all the time. You know, what's it like being a woman in this industry? And I'll tell you what, I've met some of the best people in the world in this industry. Yeah. And I've probably had more adversity outside of our industry being a woman than I have inside. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, they've been great. They. I just, I never, I never accepted that I was any different than anybody else. And they didn't treat me any different.
0: One thing that I saw and I still see, um... That's fairly, um, it's just kind of first reaction, I think. So um, because I dealt with so many accounts, there's a lot of accounts that you call where it's it's the, the wife that, like, runs the shop. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of shops where you could tell people would go in and they wouldn't, you know, they'd kind of want the... You know the main dude of the shop yeah. to do it. Um, one that comes to mind, like is uh like Bill Pellegrino's shop, yeah. right? I mean, it, yeah, it would be awesome if Bill would set up your setup. But guess what? Like his wife has been there way more than he has. Yeah. You know, he's a full time fireman. You know, and he full time screwing off hunting, yeah. full time shooter. I mean, this you know he's he's out and about. So she, I mean she was the person you actually probably wanted to ask. Yeah. Um, I think about that for, for so many shops, like, uh, gosh, you remember J and J archery in Texas, yeah. Jean.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Like I think, I think of her right yep. away. Um, Frank Addington's mom.
1: Yep.
0: Right. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean, sometimes, and I have, I, I've always said that that uh, ladies are actually better students um, and they're more repetitive in a process too. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, they, you know, they, they pay attention to detail and, and that's, uh, it's something that in some cases you might be better off with that, you know, which yeah. I think is pretty cool. I think it
1: makes them better hunters on actually. Because yeah. I've had a lot of folks who say to me, I can teach you something and you'll actually do it Yep, and not be, you know,
0: Ego doesn't step in the way. I was just say, yeah, you yeah. said it.
1: I didn't. Yeah. But yeah, that's where I was going. Uh, it's but yeah. true,
0: though. It's true. It's like, I got this. And then, you know, you wait until they welt their arm. And then you're like, OK, you want to.
1: You still got it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I probably encountered that the most when we do like consumer shows. Like, I don't know if you remember ever had to do them. But Bass Pro used to, when they would have the, the single store in Springfield, they'd have their one event. You know, it was a week long consumer deal. And we'd stand on the floor and I'd stand next to Mike from McKenzie and we'd be hawking targets together, you know, against each other all day. And so I'd spend the first five minutes of a conversation with a consumer trying to convince him I knew what I was talking about, where he could just jump in and, you know, talk product right away. So there was that. But other than that, I really didn't didn't notice it too much. You
0: like, you seem like you are exactly the same as like the very first time I saw you at an ASA shoot. I hope so. I feel like you're exactly the same. I hope I've
1: learned something along the way. (laughs) I'm
0: sure you have. Yeah, I'm sure you have with your, with your resume for sure. Was there any assignment or like, is there anything that you stepped up to in the archery community where once you were there, you realized like, man, this was actually maybe above my head to where you had to, you know, you had to find a new gear in yourself. Is there anything that
1: stands out? Yeah. When I, when I moved from being a sales manager to being the president of Delta McKenzie, uh, that was, that was a big jump, big jump. And I credit a lot of the help and support that I had from Randy Walk, who was my boss for a while. Yeah. And uh, Greg Easton was my boss for a time period there in helping me make was that Randy transition. Was Randy
0: overseeing? He was for part
1: of my time there. Oh, he yeah. did? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I learned a ton from Randy about operations and manufacturing. He was, he was a wealth of knowledge there. It was, it was great. I just, um, you know, that whole, you know, in sales, I was responsible for myself and everybody out in the field. And then you move to operations and you're responsible for everything. Mm-hmm. And so there was just a, a big learning curve there and the, the people issues that you encounter. And, yeah, there were some times when I was like, wow, this is the treadmill has not stopped climbing.
0: What did you have to do to, to like smooth that over? Was it just finding the right people that you could delegate to to where, you know, you just had full trust in, in those all those, you know, different branches that fed out.
1: Yeah, certainly you have to surround yourself with good people and, and people that can take responsibility and, and run with it, definitely. Um, but some of it was just just learning, you know, going through a cycle or two of a year and, and learning all the pieces that have to be accounted for and paid attention to. And, yeah, it was just a, a big growth opportunity there.
0: It's funny, last week... Um, Lonnie from PSE called me and he called me about, um, we've got two things coming. One thing is still in like a testing phase that's coming further down the line, but we have something that's coming out soon. Um, but we also have something that's in a testing phase and we, we bought a certain piece of machinery in order to, to be able to have like, sure you know, legit data. Mm -hmm. So he kind of called me about it. And one of the things that we really wanted to do, now we're at a challenge of from a man, like we can do it when it's one person making a prototype, which you already know where I'm going. But once it becomes something where people on the floor have to do it repetitively, and I can't, I can't even, I, I honestly don't think there was a single year where, last minute you realize something isn't going to work like you thought it would. So he kind of called me and he like broke this news. And I just said, yeah, cool. Well, let's keep going. He's just like, "Uh, so is that it? And I just said, yeah, dude, figure it out, you know. And he just said, well, you took that better than a lot of people. (laughs) And I said, when has there ever been anything that you're bringing new to the market that's gone to plan. No. Like it just, no. it really, it, as much as you want to tell people, we tested this, we did this, there's just such a weird difference. No. Um, and so here's a, here's an interesting story. So, uh, and I don't remember what year it was. Um, it might've been like, it was somewhere between 2002 and 2004, but um there was a big speed game, right? The archery industry was a speed game. Um, Matthews, we were bringing out a bow called an LX. And it was kind of a speed bow, but still a hunting speed bow. But it kind of was, you know, in between both. Mm -hmm. So originally that bow, which single cams were, you know, the thing, um, that bow was originally a two-track bow, and, you know, so there was no, there was no, like, uh, you know, there wasn't, like, I'm trying to think. It was, so there wasn't, like, three tracks on the cam. Mm-hmm. So you're, you know, essentially, it's the Genesis cam. Yeah. Okay. Um, so originally, that was a two-track system. Everything was good to go we literally get all the parts to build the 15 bows to take the ATA show and there was about 4 of us building these bows for the ATA show because things were super secretive like even our employees there was very few that like touched the new stuff but because it it never went to the floor yet and so we built these bows for the show and then i'm trying to think what happened But all of a sudden, like we started pulling them back and there was like this click noise Uh and we're like, what the heck is going on? And it just had to do with the tooling and with that being a single track and how we spaced everything in the cams once we made them on the floor, for whatever reason, we had built five prototypes where we had shot them for the whole year. Mm -hmm. And Matt was doing, you know, efficiency testing and working on cams and who knows how many times that thing got pulled back in an Instron machine. But the bottom line was they clicked like plain as day. And so, you know, Matt was trying to figure out things he could do to the cam and then literally two or three days before the ata show matt said we have to this has to be a three track system and he just went to like designing cutting and we were cutting cams and he got one to where the draw curve and everything and the speeds were how they were but it was a totally different cam like three days before they got machined Norm had to drive those things to Minnesota to get anodized, waited for them to get anodized, drove them back. Uh, Me, Brandon, Bruce, and Joel built the bows, put them in in a truck, and Brandon and I drove them to the ATA show and literally unboxed them the morning of the show. Um, So a, a cam was completely designed and built in like 24 hours, because once we had to make more than just the prototypes, it changed that fast. So like, and however many times a cat, you know, you realize there's a mistake in the catalog and then you got to freaking get a new one printed and someone's picking it up on the way or, you know, all of a sudden someone starts playing with something on the show floor and it falls off or whatever you know what I mean so uh
1: and there and done all of that yeah (laughs) exactly I can't tell you how many times we've tested something in the in-house with engineers I've worked with a lot of engineers and it hasn't equaled what happened in the field and trying I literally had this conversation we work with a lot of manufacturers at OutTech and literally had this conversation with one of them the other day that it doesn't matter what you've had performed in-house <laughs> under your perfectly controlled situation yep. and environmentally controlled and, you know, everything measured. When you put it in the field, it's not the same. And what happens there is what matters. And what happens with the consumer is all that matters. Their opinion yep. is gospel. Whether you believe it or not or agree with it or not, theirs is what matters if you want to sell product. So you don't have to like it, yeah. but you do have to live with it. And yeah. so, yeah, I totally, I mean, I remember arguing with people about, the way foam performed yeah. in my old days and guys would be like, I don't care what is happening in your factory. This yeah. is what's happening in the real world. Yeah. And uh, you know, you kind of take a step back and it's kind of like, if we ordered us. these
0: microphones, it wouldn't matter if, you know, if when we built it, these are always this tight in this yeah. state, you know, but if uh, you know, Billy Joe out there, that's building a million of these things a day, you yeah. know, by the end of the day, starts not wanting to tighten that thing up, and yeah. it just starts falling around. Like you have to plan for that. Yes. You have to be like, you know, what do we, you know, you might have to all of a sudden say, well, that didn't work. We actually need an air ratchet that tightens this up yep. to this exact pressure. Otherwise, guess what? Like when a consumer gets this, this is going to be loose in the package. I mean, it's yep. it's the simplest things. So like um, the other day, I had someone someone uh, sent a message in with the stabilizer because when he screwed it out, the, the, you know, the screw came out, mm-hmm. um, which AAE does it that way, or they didn't put any type of Loctite on their stuff because a lot of people need to change the length right. of that, that thread. Yep. If they're, exactly
1: what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. they've got
0: a V bar on the front and they have to tighten that thing through a bracket, then, then, you know, they have to do that. But I told them, I'm like, listen, most of these stabilizers are going to be going right on a bow you know they're not going to be like high level target archers necessarily that are like really need to trick these things out right. let's just make a stabilizer to where you know they can they can break that seal and, and back it out but even at that when someone's putting a dab of loctite on all yeah. day sometimes they just yeah. don't put a big enough dab on there yeah. right so it's just like a matter of saying hey you know sorry about that. It's supposed to have blue Loctite on it. You know, if there's any way you can put some on there, put it in there and leave it overnight, you'll be good to go. Yeah. But those little things like that, it's made me better in life because like, it's just, you start to, you know, water under the bridge becomes like, you know, just everyday stuff, you know, you're out in your lawnmower and all of a sudden, you know, you're, blade shoots out or whatever you're just i mean i just turn it off get off and then like go back and just say okay well where do i get this lawnmower fixed? because that's just like what happens there's just nothing you're going to do about it
1: it's ironic that i've said ironic like three times now but that's not the norm today that's not as a society i don't think that's what we've become accustomed to like everything's a big deal anymore so i appreciate the fact that you know when somebody can go uh no big deal. You know, it wasn't on purpose.
0: Yeah, just let's solve on. the problem because yeah. at this point it happened. You know what I mean? And in, I think in manufacturing specifically, um, it's just like no matter what we do, having every single knock to it, the exact color, shade of green, mm-hmm. it's like you can't do it. You know, yeah. we've tried everything. It's like when that's why we try to do big batches, so that that whole batch is because you're talking like seconds, seconds in yeah. a in a in an anodizing tape.
1: Yeah,
0: you know, and so yeah, you have to. That's the one thing I've loved about manufacturing because now, even though I think it's fair to say knock on as a manufacturer as well, because there are certain products that we certainly do ourselves. Sure but it also helps us as a kind of as an OEM person too it, it, i think because when people say like hey we can't do that it's just like okay well what's the obstacles and i can kind of think through some of that what stuff can we do? Yeah. yeah just based on the fact that i know it never happens perfectly
1: right right you, yeah. know. you should have to spend time working in retail and working in manufacturing, every person should have to, to have an appreciation <laughs> for the
0: rest of the world. Imagine that yeah. if people actually uh, if people that bought your product and, you know, this guy never did. But let's say this person flew off the handle because there was, you know, that screw backed out. And, you know, if you don't yeah. send me two right now, we're, I'm going to freaking badmouth you here and there. You yeah. know, it's just like, have you ever been somewhere where, you know someone's listening to a Joe Rogan podcast and forgets to put too big of a dab of, you know, yeah. Loctite on a screw, like that's all that happened, dude.
1: That's reality. Yeah,
0: yeah we can fix this.
1: Nobody died on the table today. <laughs> <laughs> I say that a lot.
0: So when did uh Outtech come in? I haven't so, heard this story. Oh, so
1: when I was with Delta, yep. you know, and we were purchased by Easton OutTech was our agency at the time. Yep. They had been McKinsey sales reps for many years, and they became ours. And so working with those guys over the years, when Easton made the decision to move all of the administrative and, and operational functions out to Utah, you know, I, I left. That wasn't an option with me. So yep. OutTech kind of said, hey— we don't know what we can do with you and we don't know what role is open yet, but we want you to work with us, which was kind of nice, except I didn't know what the heck I was going to be doing. (laughs) Um, And they've been, you know, great to be with since. I mean, they're a great group of people, just awesome uh, integrity, you know, hardworking. I mean, I've, when I see what these guys do every day and how much stuff that they, they touch, it's incredible to me. Like they always talk about the business is an iceberg and it, and when I was there, Partner as a manufacturer, I had no idea, you know, kind of all the things that they touch, but Mm -hmm. they they just have access to so many facets in the industry. Everything, yeah, truthfully, yeah, and they've, they've been great to work with. So it's been fun to be as much as I love archery, and that's been my you know background for so long. I love being able to touch some of the other categories and see how other manufacturers do things. I love touring manufacturing facilities and see how everybody does what they do and. You know, we're, we were all born out of a garage, every one of us. Yeah. so it's kind of neat to see how they've evolved too.
0: It's funny because, like, I think Wayne Pearson was kind of the first person to to really make a like to really make like a rock concert out of professional archery. Sure, right? But I I really do think, at least from from my experience, and maybe there's been someone that I'm not thinking of, but I really think that OutTech and Jay Oh, yeah. Skulls. Uh I think he was the first to actually bring forth this rock concert to dealers. Yeah. To yeah. where when these dealers came in, all of the products that were represented and it was all it was called the Innovation Show. Yeah. And this was always the day before the ATA. And truthfully, that was a bigger event than the ATA, in my opinion. Right. You know, and 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 Jay was you know, a freaking auctioneer just rallying the crowd.
1: Yeah. and Nobody's a better cheerleader than Jay. I mean, <laughs> I, I tell him that all the time. And that event is still, I love ATA and what they've they've built and what they've been to the industry all these years. But we know that that event is a big piece of the draw, yeah. you know, and oh, I think yeah. they know that too. So, yeah. you know, we work together to bring folks in and, and bring them, an opportunity for some community and some fun and appreciation for all the support they've given our partners. And we have a good time.
0: Did you guys guy. write orders there or was oh, that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I knew there'd be some, but I would venture to say, just based on what I saw, I didn't know if there's like actual physical orders being done Yeah. Actually at this we have show. a system
1: now where it's all being done electronically. We send out a book ahead of time to the dealers and they write their orders online
0: Oh, that's uh, sweet.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very nice system today that's evolved. And honestly, I have some partners who say I, I write more orders at Innovations than that's I do I at g- ATA.
0: Yeah, that's what I was getting to. I yeah. was going to say there's probably more orders written the night before, especially for your brands, yeah. than from there out. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's, it's a great event for us. It kickstarts the whole year. And when we you know, had COVID last year and didn't have a trade show, we were kind of trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And we basically took that show on the road. I mean, we couldn't couldn't put everybody in a room and do a concert, which is a nice draw yeah. for everybody. And it's, again, it's a, an appreciation thing. But we went out in the field and kind of did the same thing. I had guys that took their took their retailer skeet shooting, or took somebody bowling, or brought pizza in and just had a, yeah. a nice meal with them and whatever. But we just took it to them instead and uh, did actually wrote more business during COVID than we did the year before.
0: Is there still any passion projects for you in the industry?
1: You know, I still get to dabble a little bit with ATA. Mm -hmm. Um, We still have a seat on the board. And so when when Jay is not available, I get to do that. And I still really appreciate that organization and what they try to do for retailers. Um, But honestly, my life's pretty full with with without tech and raising some kids and, you know. Yeah, I know your boys
0: are legit. Ball players, but is there like is there anything that you feel like our industry really needs to focus some attention to for the longevity of the industry? Where maybe it just hasn't. I mean, because there's a lot of people like you or I that are saying, yeah, there's a lot of like there's things I would love to be involved with, but it's just bandwidth.
1: Yeah, it absolutely is. And
0: and the people that would need to be involved for those types of rocks to move there's not enough multiple pushers with the bandwidth to tackle it but yeah. do you feel like there's one thing that we need to to turn some attention to
1: well i think i think the idea that we still need to figure out how to create places for people to go to learn archery yeah has to happen we've got you know we've got some dealers who are doing a great job at that yep but it's not enough of a of a systematic format that allows everybody to be successful at that. There's just not, I mean, if I want to learn to play t-ball, I know who I contact. I know where to go. I, you know, but if I want to play youth football, I go talk to this person. And there's not really a great system. And I know there's been some, you know, folks who have attempted that and they're doing well with that. I mean, you've got Joad, you've got NASP, you've got those pieces, but.
0: There hasn't been a standout. Yeah. They're all great, but the reality is not every shop can can survive off just archery right and that's a big part of it you know um there's shops that you know they have to have paintball and they have to have camping supplies and they have to have guns and you know they have to have fishing and bait and all that stuff and with that means like archery is time intuitive, right. you know, and that's, that's why I tell people all the time, like right now is not the time to go get your bow, but, like to go buy a bow, have it set up and expect for that shop to dial you in, right? make sure all your marks are good, make sure your broadheads are on, give you some pointers. Like you're getting, you're getting the cliff notes yes. of archery right now. Exactly. If you're going into a dealer, because, you know, and, and honestly, in the next it'll actually kind of go the opposite direction. It'll start to taper off here pretty soon because everybody's hunting. Right. So, like, then the store's open again, but if, but if you're wanting to be a hunter, at that point, it's too late.
1: Yeah.
0: But, yeah, and that—I I do agree with that. I think there's some shops that have an unbelievable protocol of having an instructional side and giving people— you know, 10 free, 10 free range passes with the, you know, with the full bow purchase yeah. or whatever, you know, whatever they do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just not affordable for a, a dealership to have, you know, that right person that's in that role. And right. that's all they do. Because if they do both, the reality is, you know, they need to be selling a bow a day. Right. So um, that person if they're doing that, is taking up time. Yeah. You know, they're not going to be able you to... You can go
1: on, you can go on YouTube and learn anything, teach yourself anything. I hope
0: so. That's yeah. what I try for. Yes.
1: Except, I feel like archery is one of those things that while you can do that, your route to success is a lot longer, mm-hmm. you know? So if you can have somebody who can kind of walk you through...
0: The teach, baseline yeah. out of the get-go exactly, leaps and bounds. So much more
1: successful early, mm-hmm. then you're more apt to stick with it. And so... When I think about the people who are the influencers in young people's lives to get them started in things, it's, it's again, it's, it's how do you get somebody to take one, make one? Yeah. And a lot of that is, is moms. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of shops aren't set up for moms, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're thinking average guy, bow hunter, you know? and they're not necessarily welcome places for
0: well, they're not. the novice. They're just not. And there are
1: some shops that are great at that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I've worked with a handful of, of folks with ATA that are just great at that, do a, have phenomenal kids' party programs and rental programs and all kinds of ways to introduce kids. Yep. But it's over and above their everyday business, you know. And it's not like right now everybody's not really busy with just being an archery shop today. Mm-hmm. So that's tough. You know, yeah. resources are spread thin.
0: I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I feel like there needs to be somehow we need to to just like merge the synergy of um, some of these organizations that are really focused on bow hunting ethics and protecting bow hunting. I feel like we need like we've got to have a better way of kind of bringing the ATA into some of the direction and, and some of the duties that like. Pope and Young Club and Boone and Crockett Club. Um, You know, there's a lot of like bow hunting organizations and chapters out there, but everybody's going at like, everyone's pointed a different way Mm -hmm. to like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you type something in your phone, it shows you three routes. It shows you fastest, you know, less stops and, you know, whatever. And that's kind of what's happening right now with a lot of these organizations like we need we need someone you know we need someone that's going to come in but also like solidify th- those like to where the path is you know when you type it in it's just like here's the road yeah you know this is the road that's that's the longest most like productive road for bow hunting that's going to have longevity and keep all of our rights and our freedoms there and and you know and keep the code of ethics um, and then also just you know make sure that there's a voice that has politics yeah you know that's one of the things um, I don't know with Pope and Young I just recently started working I try to work with as many people as I can yeah. um, but like with the Boone and Crockett Club there's you know there's a lot of people in those committees that just have great political ties to where um, your membership is, is helping those people when they have the ear of someone that's making these main calls, right, right. they're able to say like, Hey, that's not a good idea, yeah. you know, and here's what this is going to affect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the ATA could, could step into that world and do a really good job with, especially with the people that are on the board. They've all got, you know, they've yeah. all all got resources, right? Like the ATA is kind of like, like you said, when Delta Mackenzie was acquired by Easton, with that came resources, yeah. you know, from from multiple fashions, you know. So um, I think the same is true. Yeah. I think eventually that has to happen mm-hmm. to where it's like, listen, we're all bow hunters. Um, who understands? The ultimate vision and is going to make sure that we're accepted, you know, globally, right. you know, as best well, if you as possible. Remember back
1: in the day, um, IBO always had the, the Bowhunter Defense Fund. Yep. Like I feel like back then that was everybody kind of understood what that was for, and everybody kind of endorsed the idea. Yeah. And ATA has a great legislative arm. You know, they've yeah. got a lot of connections built over the years with Jay Mackinich and stuff that gives them good insight there. But the ATA is is designed to perpetuate retail. Yeah, You know, they're for mm-hmm. the dealer. And we're really talking about bow hunters, the general consumer. And yeah. so there's, there's this gap now that exists between what used to be the bow hunter defense fund and, and what ATA is doing for retailers. So we well, need what, something in between.
0: What worked about that was those consumers were in front of the IBO people when they were at IBOs. Yeah. So the message was, write like you know mouth to mouth right you know mouth to ear really you know whereas like some of these organizations it's based on are you reading the quarterly newsletter Mm -hmm. or right you know and honestly a lot of these places aren't great at they're just not good at social media which right now is a probably the best form of communication right and it really um Not everyone's good at it, you know, not everyone and not everyone has a passion about it. But also um, people ask me all the time, like, do you do your social media? Yes, I do my social media. And there's no way that it would be what it is if I hadn't like worked for a manufacturer, been a rep, been a competitor, um, worked independently for multiple people because So much of what I'm saying, I'm also navigating things that I know are probably going to pop up as a comment, which is kind of what you have to do as a manufacturer. Anytime you make a statement, you have to realize, you know, you really have to weigh out what is this statement going to, what's the cause and effect of this statement? Whereas most people, it's just free speech. So they can just drop an opinion. Um, All of my opinions I'm hoping in some way or another is helping someone, sure. you know, that's kind of the, the, the point of like, what lesson did I learn today? And I can say, or what lesson can I like pass on? Um, but there, you know, we need some of the key organizations to actually step up and do that because the people that are doing that well right now, in, at least in my opinion, they're influencers. Right. They're not like the main organizations and they're not the manufacturers. Right. And truthfully, those are the people with the most power. You know, I, th- I think the influencers are great at helping make sure the bow hunting community doesn't like freaking implode itself with something, especially with the way politics are right now. Right. And I know for me... Competing internationally really changed. It changed everything about like how I navigate bow hunting because it's not legal. A lot of places where you go. Um, And I've asked a lot of people that, you know, their opinions, like, Hey, I would love to hear your side. Like, tell me what it is. And even if they're like, well, do you agree with it? I might just say like, I don't agree with it, but I don't agree with it because, um, you honestly don't know the other side right. and I'm not gonna be able to explain it to you right now. So like, I accept your opinion. Yeah. Your opinion is based on your experiences and your laws and you're a hundred percent right. It wouldn't work here. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just can't, you can't like go out in England and bow hunt stuff. It's like there's very few areas where there's wild animals just running around yeah. that need to be regulated. Right. And if you don't have that, it's a very different argument, you know, whereas if you go to somewhere like Hawaii with Axis, it needs more regulation than what it actually, I I shouldn't say more regulation. That's not fair to say, but like, that is literally, you know, two fish tanks of just like, Exploding population. Yeah, they
1: need more participation. Yeah, to yeah. Take they care don't need
0: that. regulation. They need participation for for the management of what's going on. Right. Um. You know, and I think commercially, there's a few places that have kind of moved in and started doing some commercial access stuff. You know, for for commercial access that that has regulation um, in like FDA approval and processing and stuff. And that's freaking oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Like if you go to. Um, if you go to Hawaii, a lot of places like they have venison on the menu mm-hmm. and it's because it's all like fresh venison from there. And right. it's like unbelievable to get like I had access sliders one day for lunch. And I'm like, this is freaking better. Like you get this stuff to a legit chef. That's not just me hacking around. Yeah. Um, it was freaking awesome. You know, it was great. And, and I think we need... We need to do a better job at, like, you know, areas where it just doesn't make sense. Like, don't push the issue, you know. It's like some places, if people are like, well, I'm fighting to get bow hunting legalized here. It's like, well, you know, there's one farm that has a lot of deer on it. You know, it's not like I drive around and see deer all the time. Whereas, you know, in when Sharon first came to Wisconsin and, you know, and hunting became, like, she so realized like hunting is totally needed. Right. You know, slamming on your brakes, trying not to hit yep. freaking deer. And then, you know, she's like, the deer are always in the yard. You know, they're always eating the garden. Right. You know, it's like at some point you realize they need some regulation. regulation. You yeah. know, and, and you have to. Like last year, um, one of the last days of late season, I was out and I had all my doe tags. And part of me, Kind of didn't want to like shoot those. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it, it's like when you see that many and you see the like, I leave a lot of food, you know, standing yeah. and it's like they're not going to make it. Yeah. Like this, this, there's, I would have to leave so much for food to like feed the population of this whole area. Right. Like, You know, doe tags are out there for a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, the DNR surveys, they do counts like, you know, the and these counts are based on, you know, what the success rate is on filling them. And they're pretty dang good at those numbers, you know, And, and I know there's times where, you know, maybe there's like a huge winter kill. Like I know in South Dakota, there was a huge winter kill in like, you know early 2000s or just you know maybe 2008 or somewhere in there there was like a big kill and the DNR wasn't like quick enough to react so that same number of tags went out that next year sure and then and then at that point not only did everybody have like did they struggle to hunt but people still had success, but with less numbers, and it just devastated the sure. it devastated the the antelope hunting for years and years and years. Right. Like you know, right. and I was in a very good spot where I had permission, and they just said like, "Hey, we're just going to let these things bounce back." There's not like there's not enough here for us to justify letting people hunt them, right. and I got it. And, and they I were love right. when
1: when locals recognize that too, though. Oh and yeah, I used to hunt a place in Wyoming south of Gillette that. There were both antelope and mule deer. And they they came to us and said, listen, for the next two years, we're not hunting any mule deer on this property. Like, don't take anything. You can antelope hunt all you want, but we're not taking any mule deer because the population just, is, just isn't here. Yeah. And several years later, we saw that be much healthier. And, and it wasn't because the state came in and, and said DNR said the numbers were off. It was because the locals said, listen, this is, we believe this is the best way to manage our area. And, and I love when they yeah. you know, take part of the, the process here.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, what's your next big thing you want to tackle in archery? Is there anything that like? Is there anything on your to do list? To do list? Yeah.
1: You know, i I have a I have a desire to elk hunt again. I haven't done that in a while, and would really like to do that. Uh, Jay, but, yeah, make it happen. Yeah, no kidding. Thanks. <laughs> uh, but mostly, at this point in my life, I'm I'm more about getting people into the sport. Yeah. You know, how do I create more hunters? You know, I've got five kids that are all over hunting right now and uh, we're in the thick of duck season right now so it's crazy at my house but just I love to watch are you on a
0: flyway over there
1: um I don't know that I would say we are but they've had (laughs) some pretty good luck so far this year Uh, we're a little bit to the east I think Uh, yeah um but just getting new folks in the, the field teaching them you know archery um I've taken several my nephews and nieces and stuff and it's just I love to watch somebody new, you know, take an animal for the first time and appreciate that experience and you know, the, the tracking and the recovery and processing and all of those things. Just, you know, it, I've taught them a skill that, yeah. I mean, that's a life skill that most people don't get anymore. So. You know.
0: Do you feel like they, do you feel like your, your kids bonded with you more on those experiences than like, if they win a big game and, you know, you get to see them afterwards or whatever?
1: Oh, yeah. They won't admit it in the moment, you know, because, you know, you got to, like, pry any conversation (laughs) out of them, you know, when you're in the blind or, you know, in a stand or whatever. But, honestly, I think those are the memories that they remember over time. You know, like, I took my first deer with my mom or, you know, whatever.
0: That's so awesome. Yeah.
1: And it's a bit of a competition in our house too. So like everybody divides up into, you know, dad with one and mom (laughs) with another. Who can, who can fill a tag first? So yeah.
0: Dang. That is awesome. We're
1: a little competitive.
0: Well, Jen, um, on behalf of, you know, at least whatever part of the industry that I represent, you know, thank you for everything that you've, you know, it's been a lifetime. Like I said, I remember, um, I remember the first time I saw you and Laverna at a shoot, you know. And I don't, I'm not for sure if Delta actually had targets at that shoot, but I know that you guys were always there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, do you remember what I looked like back then?
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> How horrible was it? <laughs> you were,
1: you were much different looking back then. You were yeah. a the skinny guy.
0: Yeah, I was super skinny. Did I have sideburns and lamb I chops? Oh, I don't remember if you had. <laughs> Yeah, I went through a phase of uh being super skinny and I remember like when I first started shooting uh we our family did a lot in like rodeo and oh. and stuff like that then but um I wore like 30 40 Wranglers. Oh yeah. And uh that was before the dress code and then um my sister ended up moving back and I had Cajun cooking, like, you know, crawfish etouffee, like three or four times a week. And, you know, she baked all the time. And then I just got really chubby. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, I kind of fell in, like, at that time, there wasn't that many archers that were really in shape, too. I mean, it was like... Like bellies were the thing, no,
1: honestly I mean <laughs> that was your there stabilizer was, yes, there was a size and shape that applied to archery, and yep. I'm like this is not probably a healthy no you know?
0: no, it yeah. W- yeah, it totally wasn't, and then I remember um I remember just realizing like, dude, you know, I think I saw a picture of me shooting um. Well, I know I did. It was uh, it was actually like a 35 millimeter, and it was in black and white because Joel and I used to love taking pictures and yeah. stuff. And me and Joel and Derek uh, Phillips shot a shoot together somewhere down in southern Wisconsin. Yeah. And I remember getting those pictures and just seeing, like, this belly. And I was like, I've got to do something about this. And that's when I you know, totally started changing how I ate. I actually, um, I implemented a, um, something that was taught to me just called having. So all I did was whatever I ordered, um, anything that was a carb on that plate, I would just only eat half of what came out. That's kind of how I started. So like if I ordered a burger, I would take half the bun off. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd take the top off the bun or I'd keep whatever was the smallest. And then with my fries, I would like just take a knife, divide it in half and, you know, kind of put it on my little side plate with that with that bun. And I started out just doing that to where I was like just eating half of the carbs that I had always. And then it just got to the point where I actually started recognizing I feel better when I'm not eating some like poor carb choices. And so then it slowly just kind of evolved to like, I actually, unless it's pizza crust or like a whole grain pasta, which now I've actually moved into like zucchini noodles, but um, I'm not really a, a carb person, but it it was never like instant. I kind of you know I feel like I would have quit it if I was trying to you do gotta just wean out yeah. Carbs, yeah. Yep.
1: You got to wean off of it.
0: Are you low carb?
1: Uh, I try, I try, <laughs> but I love carbs. Like bread is my nemesis. Yeah, love it. It's interesting though because I think one of the attractions to archery has always been that it's not as physical of an activity. Like I think it's yeah. it's maybe what's allowed. Things like NAS to really take root because it's not your kid that has to be the, the elite. It's athlete, the pro and you know? the con of it, right? Yes, it is. But I love what TAC has done to bring some physicality into yeah. this work because it, it's really kind of sedentary if you think about the it, physical act of shooting yeah. unless you add that movement to it. And well, there was always like a
0: Western that. hunter that had a look, and then there's a Midwestern hunter. Oh,
1: yeah, there still is.
0: Yeah, still it's, is. yeah. So, I mean, you know you you go out there and like when we went to Michigan and PA there was definitely people that had never shot a 4 mile course right. and they were like smoked and they're just like I'm get I'm going to be in better shape for this next year right and then you know a lot of times I'm tagged in posts and I start seeing them like okay that dude is actually like he's on a bike right now making a post like that's freaking cool yeah. you know he's making changes so I, th- I, I do think it's awesome, you know, some of the directions that we're going. And I th- and again, I think, like, some of the focus of eating better or, like, knowing how to cook wild game better right. has also really helped people, like, clean up their diets, which oh, for me, absolutely. that's what I needed the most. I just had to clean up, you know, what I was taking in. Yeah. And then that helped me over time, like, get back to where I wanted to be.
1: The whole field-to-table, farm-to-table, that whole movement has helped people get healthier, eat healthier, Yeah, you know, and I'd love to see more of that happening and love to perpetuate more of that. My own family, you know, we have potlucks and stuff and everybody knows if you don't want to know what Jen put in that, just eat it. It'll be fine because there's probably (laughs) game in it, you know, and they just come to accept it and otherwise would never be exposed to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's uh, in some ways, regardless of what the name is you know if it's venison or elk either one of those names in a dish compared to getting a hamburger from yep. any market you're way further ahead exactly. like from a health point throw of some view
1: bison in or oh yeah, yeah. i'm gonna i'm
0: gonna shoot a bison just oh, yeah. just for the point of like um i've been getting these like monthly boxes from mountain primal
1: yeah.
0: um which i had heard about through one of my buddies and then i met them. Um, like I'm trying to think when it was March or April, super awesome people and uh, started talking to them about their ranch and, or I should say ranches, but they've got a main ranch in Colorado. And then once I started talking about it, I was like, okay, well, if I'm not eating wild game, this is like the perfect alternative and it gives me access to like bison, yeah. you know, beef and then pork. But like, It's almost like it's coming from a, you know, as if another hunter said like, hey, I've got, you know, I've got some bison. Do you want some? I feel like that's kind of more like what it's like, which is why I've been talking about them, because it's like, okay, this is out of all the places where I've looked at. um for having alternatives to like variation of game. Yeah. This was a this was like a really good yeah. thing for me. But now that I know how much I like bison, which I've been eating a lot of it lately. Yeah, I love it. Um, I really want to shoot one yeah. and like have a freezer full of that stuff. Yeah. It's it's awesome.
1: We had a buddy who raised him for a while and so we got into a bunch of buffalo and it's terrific tasting. Yeah. I mean, we love it. Mossy Oak has a partner of theirs that has like a butcher shop type deal that you can order. And variety of wild game, same kind of a deal, I yeah. think. You know, you get alligator and crazy stuff. Oh, dang. All right. Yeah, it's good yeah
0: alligator's awesome. Yeah. Well, Jen, thank you very much for coming here. Okay. And uh, again, thanks for everything you do for the industry. It's been awesome. And been you've been a mogul.
1: Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's been fun.
0: Knock on, everybody. Be sure to check out knockonarchery.com for our full line of custom-designed products as well as free in-depth education and bow hunting entertainment to help you shoot at your best.